On the Black Information Network, our stories matter. That's why BIN proudly supports the Hashtag Matter podcast, an eight-episode drama from Shondaland Audio that shines light on issues relevant to Black communities across America. To learn more about America's only 24-7 all-news network for Black communities, listen now at BINnews.com. That's BINnews.com on your local Black Information Network station or on the iHeartRadio app. Hashtag Matter is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio and in association with Wolf at the Door. This episode was brought to you in collaboration with 1UP, a social justice coalition working to end police brutality. In this two-part documentary follow-up to Hashtag Matter, we'll consider unexamined repercussions joined by some of the nation's leading activists, historians, and thinkers. Maybe... By contextualizing our past, we can better define our future. A future that includes an exciting new normal where we invest in resources that build safe communities and healthy kids. Listen up, it's your boy Pooch Hall in the building, and this is Context Matters. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I suggest you go back and listen before moving on here because it provides incredibly important historical context that brings us to the present moment. I always say that I would love to live in a world where police are like payphones. You know, we use them once upon a time, and now we understand them differently. And we've taken the phones into our own hands, quite literally, in our pockets. And that's what I feel like we need to do with the care and safety um, that we have. We need to It needs to be brought into our communities. Kendrick Sampson, an actor and activist, co-founder of Build Power. Dr. Melina Abdullah always talks about, you know, how when she first moved to L.A., she realized that every morning all of these, what we would call old heads, elders would come out and sit on the porch. And it was like clockwork, seven o'clock every day or something like that. And she couldn't understand what was happening. And finally she asked and she said, the the elder said, that's when the kids go to school. That's their safety system. And they sit and they watch. We don't need cops. What I saw was a very beautiful, nurturing, caring system that worked. Nobody was going to mess with these babies while the elders were watching. And there are systems like that, that we can create even that's happening. I think in Baton Rouge, where there was a school where 45 dads got together and and um, fights and suspensions and all of that went way, 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 way down because they knew they had people that they respected and their dads and such watching. So, and they did it in shifts. So, and I'm not saying that the everyday people need to take even more out of their time. We can have those resources. Those resources now are tied up in astronomical budgets. And those budgets are... 40 to 50 percent of all of the resources we have in our city budgets. The death of Mike Brown ushered in a new wave of activism. But the protests themselves demonstrated just how extreme police budgets and militarizations had become. Historian Elizabeth Hinton. After Michael Brown's murder in 2014, those MRAP armored tanks 
roaming through the streets of Ferguson that the Ferguson Police Department had on hand. People were stunned that local police had these weapons that were being used at the time in um, Afghanistan. And people said, oh, well, this is surplus military transfers from the war on terror. No, this militarization has been happening for well over half a century. It began when Johnson called the war on crime in 65 and in, in large part to create a pipeline where surplus military weapons that like tear gas and M4 carbine rifles and helicopters and armored tanks and, and bulletproof vests, walkie talkies, all kinds of new weapons and technologies being used in Vietnam and interventions overseas to local law enforcement to fight black rebellion at home. Where are our tax dollars going? And how do they reflect what we value as a society? Author, thinker, and speaker on issues of identity and race in America, Ijoma Oluo. In a world with finite resources, we are being told that often the largest chunk of our funds need to go to locking up people. If your youth, if your teenagers going through a rough time in shoplifting or experimenting with some drugs, you expect to be able to call a number and get help. You expect that whoever they interact with is going to say, this is a troubled kid who needs help. You expect that if they're caught shoplifting in the stores, and we see this in TV all the time, that the store owner is going to walk them home and say, you know what, your kid's in trouble. Have them show up on Tuesday and mop the floor for free. You expect that if someone you love is in mental health crisis, that you will be able to call a professional who will come and get them the help and safety that they need. When we say, when my teen is in trouble, what he needs is intervention. What he needs is some guidance. I need to make sure that whoever is called in sees the humanity of my child. Instead, the person responding when your kid shoplifts should be trained to kill. That is not anybody who sees the value in humanity in our communities wants. I think that you know, there's so much debate around the language of defund the police. and. I was talking with some friends, some, some colleagues of mine who've been, you know, heavily involved in this work. And in, in times just even, you know, six years ago when you wouldn't say defund the police on a large platform, it wasn't a debate to have because people were scared of it. And now this is a debate we're having, which I think is important and I think is progress that abolition, first and foremost, is tied to the understanding that our police system, our so-called criminal justice system, is not only a descendant, but a, a continued justification of the idea that those in power get to decide who has freedom and who doesn't, who is redeemable and who isn't, based on the color of their skin, based on their disability, based on their wealth and resources of their freedom and builds a story justifying that. Defund the police simply says, no, this is not what I choose my money to go to. This is not what we should be putting our resources into. We don't believe that it makes people safer. We don't believe that it's a way to live. We live in a world where people who have been denied resources do desperate things. And as long as those resources are lacking, those desperate acts will occur. And so we say, well, what, what if we gave those resources? 
What if people weren't so desperate? There have to be a lot of different solutions and different approaches that we try. So one of the things that we did to address these issues was create a task force on the future of community policing. And this task force was outstanding because it was made up of all the different stakeholders. We had law enforcement, we had community activists, we had young people. They held public meetings across the country. They developed concrete proposals that every community in America can implement to rebuild trust and help law enforcement. Sociologist Nikki Jones. I think there are good examples right now of community-driven efforts to redefine safety, to think about non-criminalizing ways that the government can, in fact, intervene. Uh, Policing is the most coercive uh, way in which they do that, but there are other ways that they could provide support and resources. In summer 2020, I thought critically about how we could use the resources of the university uh, to provide to those who are on the front lines of this battle to, to reimagine public safety, to develop community alternatives. Uh, and so what I've been able to do over working closely with a community partner to bring research expertise and energy of students in service of building up the, the life-affirming institutions that abolition calls for, the project not of, of, of perfecting uh, policing, but, but really strengthening uh, communities and thinking about all the ways that policy uh, can be used to do that. And so if I think about Oakland, there's a, a program where it, it trains uh, community members in crisis response. Uh, we know one of the most volatile encounters is when police officers are interacting with people who are experiencing crisis, uh, particularly mental health crisis. Uh, and so what is it? It mean to train a broader swath of the community to respond uh, to crisis. So that's a key shift that came from this moment. Uh, And there are reasons why people coalesced around that. One part is that law enforcement, or certainly some law enforcement officers or leaders agreed that their skills and expertise don't align with mental health crises uh, and were less resistant to other people coming in um, to that space. Where you will get more pushback is with the the anti-violence, the violence prevention efforts, because fundamentally the police believe that that is their domain. And so for me, when you ask me about reforms, one of the most important is to directly confront the violence of policing. Uh, and to constrain the ability of police to use violence uh, and and to do harm. And that is where the biggest battle is going to be. Because when you think about what police unions are defending, they're not necessarily defending the right of of officers to respond to mental health crises. They're responding to defending officers uh, and their ability to use as much violence as necessary in any encounter. Well, let me just say that the police union is a lobbying arm of the police department. That's their function, basically. Retired Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. She spent 20 years in uniform in patrol on the Los Angeles Police Department between 1980 and 2000. And I know that some unions are stronger than others, are more aggressive in terms of really uh, going to the mat for officers, many times errant officers, 
When you hear the term, uh, the blue wall of silence, really all that is, is, you know, what the, what the kids say in the street, you know, snitches get stitches. <laughs> and so nobody wants to tell on somebody else, generally wholesale, because when you report misconduct, there's a price to pay. And that price could be something as simple as just being ostracized, which is a real thing. It could be something as serious as not getting backup if you ask for it. Police chiefs, sheriffs, and commissioners could stop all of this errant behavior yesterday if they had an appetite to do that. You can't have a Derek Chauvin on a police department over 20 years or nearly 20 years on the department with as many personnel complaints as he had years on the job and not have anything substantively be done to him administratively to deter that bad behavior. If they wanted to, they being command staff, police chiefs, if they wanted to stop the behavior, they absolutely could. Many police chiefs will say that, you know, we can't get rid of these guys because of the police unions. And that may very well be true because officers do have um, a right to due process. But what a police officer is not guaranteed is to work in patrol, to be in the field. And I know this to be true from a personal position that if a watch commander, if a captain wants to take a police officer out of the field, they can do it. They can tie them to a desk for their entire career if they so chose. Just as with anything, if something is allowed to go unchecked, then it certainly has the potential to become a behemoth, right? Whether it's crime or whether it's uh, errant officers. We'll return after this break. Our stories matter. That's why the Black Information Network proudly supports the Hashtag Matter podcast, a new full cast eight episode drama series from Shondaland Audio and iHeart Podcast that delves into social justice topics. Told through a fictional lens, Hashtag Matter sheds a light on issues relevant to black communities across America, much like the work we do on the Black Information Network. BIN is America's only 24-7 all news network where every story is told from black Black perspectives by black journalists who understand the importance of telling stories with us in mind. Listen to the Black Information Network online now at BINnews.com. That's BINnews.com on the iHeartRadio app or simply tell your smart speaker to play the Black Information Network station. We're back. This is Context Matters. Here is Kendrick Sampson. So I think that when we're talking about abolition in, the, in a world without police, people hear what we're taking away <laughs> and not what the vision is. The whole reason that the abolitionist movement exists is to uproot all of those things that were intended to oppress those systems that were built that weren't ever held accountable. They just had a new face. Those things need to be uprooted, just like any bad tree or weed that's causing problems in any other garden. Uh, you uproot that and you plant good seeds in that, in that soil. You don't hire a violent institution to keep you safe. 
you institute systems that are meant for safety. That's it. I don't think it's really hard. We just have to, you know, have those conversations, start building that that narrative infrastructure for that narrative change that precedes culture, that precedes politics, that builds the infrastructure that we actually need. Me, Mike De La Rocha, Tia Osho, co-founded Build Power to organize people in the entertainment industry, to utilize their platforms to shine a light on these incredible, extraordinary stories happening all the time that we don't hear, wins happening all the time. One of the key tenets to oppression is to suppress all of that good uh, work, to say that it's not happening, to hide it. And we're in the epicenter of the biggest narrative industry, uh, the mecca of film and television right here in Los Angeles. Why don't we start to build a program to organize folks? And we wanted to demystify a lot of those things that people call radical um, that are really just logical solutions to problems that people have been fighting for for centuries. And we want to build a powerful community that is uh, dead set on making this world a much better place, uh, a place that we dream of where we know that those who are currently marginalized and targeted can be centered and can thrive. And now those people that we love, those trans folks, those people who are um, differently abled, who are deaf, blind, who are elderly, kids, you know, black, brown, dark skin, fat, whatever their bodies look like, they are centered, they are valued, and they have the resources that they need to have autonomy over the wellness of their communities. We know that that world is possible, and we know the people that are leading that change, and we want to make sure that we introduce them to and influence Hollywood and all of the stories that are coming out, out of Hollywood because they usually perpetuate harm, and we want to make sure that they perpetuate liberation. We have to change that narrative. We have to change the narratives, and we have to replace them with narratives that are true. Then you start to literally build the future that you want to see. What? is the narrative around policing where it intersects with race. And how can we reshape it? Again, Ijuoma Olua. When we think of how whiteness is depicted in media, um, we get to see all sorts of whiteness. We get to see the white charity worker, the white villain, you know, the complicated white identity. We get to see white children. And very rarely, actually, do we get to see black children being children, being more than a tragedy or a troubled youth. And it limits the ways in which we view people. It limits the ways in which Black people see themselves and absolutely limits the ways in which people who aren't Black see us and what we're capable of and the range of emotions that we have and also how the world impacts us. It creates this narrative that the white experience in the United States is the default experience. And if a cop isn't, is a bad cop, usually they're depicted as a lazy cop, a cop who isn't willing to do what it takes to take down the perpetrator, a cop that isn't willing to, you know, chase down that evil villain and not the ways in which bad policing actually shows itself today, which is, um, police officers who are very quick to see any black or brown person living their life as a possible threat or danger. Oh, you know, I think one of the most beautiful things 
when I'm asked to really think about the future is acknowledging that if, if you actually invest in the things that prevent crime, if you invest in the things that build healthy communities, there is no way you can actually have a police force that functions the way it does. We have severely under-resourced sexual educators and rape crisis clinics. We have severely under-resourced mental health clinics and, you know, um, suicide hotlines. We have severely under-resourced job programs and training programs and schools. Maybe we just say, we take that budget and we put it there. When we take the things off the plate of cops that cops shouldn't be doing. And I don't know who, I don't know any everyday people who honestly believe that someone trained to kill needs to be giving you a $20 ticket when you don't come to a complete stop at a stop sign. Or that someone trained to kill needs to be interacting with your child when they steal a pack of candy from the corner store. Or someone trained to kill needs to be showing up at your door after you've been sexually assaulted. So if we said we also wanted to make sure that cops didn't kill people on mental health checks, then that means that we would have to have mental health training, that we would have to have de-escalation training. It would mean that we would need to remove that deadly weapon that often escalates a scene. It means that, you know, we would have to have officers who specialize in these areas. More from Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. Officers need to be better trained. Officers need to undergo a psychological evaluation, not just when you're hired, not just when you're involved in a deadly use of force, but I just say every two years, because police officers are exposed daily, particularly patrol officers, every day to something that is gnarly, that could affect you in a way that could alter your whole core. And police officers don't self-report. They're not going to come in and ask for help because it's not sexy, because you'll be hazed, because you'll be teased. And so you have to compel officers every two years to come in and crack open their head and just look inside. And if stuff's not working right, if you can fix it, fix it. And if you can't, help them onto a profession where their skill set is better suited because every person who wants to be the police should not be the police. They don't have the temperament. I do know that here in uh, California, Senator Bradford is at least trying to have officers in California held accountable when they do certain things. And, and it's just this side of ending qualified immunity, but it's a great baby step. We too have an onus. We have a responsibility. Sheriffs are elected officials. District attorneys who don't want to prosecute errant officers are elected officials. Judges who don't want to give police officers a sentence commiserate with the crime that they've been convicted of are elected officials. And that just because someone runs from you, you don't get to shoot them. I've had many, many suspects during my 20 years run from me. Just because somebody doesn't comply, doesn't come here, doesn't turn around, says something that you find offensive, does not give you the right to kill them. I have been in fights with people, but guess what? I shot no one in my 20 years. So I'm here to tell you, I've dealt with some of the baddest badass. I shot no one. So there's a way to do this job 
there's a way to take bad guys and girls to jail, allow them to have their dignity and survive even in non-compliance. We are not to be the judge, jury and executioner day in and day out as we patrol the streets of the city where we're employed. I don't have a problem speaking truthfully. Um, I know depending on what I say on any given day may ruffle the feathers of activists. If I'm saying something that they deem is pro-police or certainly could uh, ruffle the feathers of the police because I'm giving away company secrets, but I don't speak the way that I do because I'm anti-police, although I've been accused of that. Uh, I've spent a significant amount of my life doing what it is that I do. I wanna make things better. I wanna make things different. And if we don't admit that there's a problem, then we have nothing to fix. Nikki Jones. How do you provide safety for that young person or, or a, a vision that emerges from the needs of that young person, not from the needs of, of politicians, uh, you know, selected or elected? <laughs> it's a deep project. It's a deep project. Um, and so the, the commitment has to be to opening up and to thinking differently. And I think particularly for white people, not exclusively, from confronting the way that your alignment with policing is part of a racial, the racial project of policing, right? That, that policing is a, a white institution that is based on protecting, in part, white people from the fear, right, uh, in their imaginations of Black people. That's part of it. Uh, and so when you say you want more policing, do you want more of that? Some people do, <laughs> and that's real, but some people don't. Uh, and if that's the case, then they need to confront that and begin working toward that. I think a lot of people have been trying to figure out what the protests in 2020 mean. They are unprecedented for a lot of us. And a lot of us in our lifetime haven't seen protests in the United States to that scale. And it, it was stunning to see. It was stunning to see so many people marching for Black lives. It was stunning to see these conversations in areas of society that had so long been resistant. What that will mean for us long-term is to be determined. If we continuously go back to the fact that we're talking about systems, then that means that we'll only really be able to see the effectiveness of these protests when we see it in the systems. What I would love is for people to say, what is happening in my town, in my church, in my school, right? What is happening here? I want people to be curious about why things are the way they are. How many kids of color in your school are getting the education they need or thriving? How many are being sent to juvenile detention? How many are being expelled or suspended? How many are being put into special education when they don't have disabilities? Right? How often is this happening in your neighborhood, in your town? That's the conversation I want people to have. And then I want people to ask, where have I been made a party to this? Where have I been taught and incentivized to support this? And how do I stop? And then for populations of color, especially Black people, who I think have been not only, of course, have we survived so much for so many generations, but I would say even this whole discussion has been is so brutal when you're constantly asked to revisit 
your own trauma and dehumanization and your own unsafety in the world, I think that we need to have a lot more conversations about what healing and looks like and what joy looks like. This work isn't easy. We may not always get it right. We may make mistakes along the way, but if our intentions are aligned, we can and we will grow from those mistakes. When we come together to protest, change policy, and make demands of our leaders, we must always, always nurture the ground we're standing on in the present moment. Remember to celebrate each other. Relish all that we're looking to protect. This episode was brought to you by Shondaland Audio in collaboration with OneUp, a social justice coalition working to end police brutality. Hashtag Matter is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio and in association with Wolf at the Door. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.